1: Well, this morning we are continuing on in a sermon series in, uh, the first, uh, in first Peter, uh, Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, we've called this sermon series a living hope from that great verse in first Peter, uh, that we have been born again into a living hope through Jesus Christ. And so, uh, because we all need hope, uh, during these times, uh, we are looking to this wonderful letter in the New Testament, uh, for how we live in this world. Uh, as citizens of another uh, possessed by another hope. And so this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, let's listen to the reading of God's word.
0: Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable you endure, but if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to you this has been, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love.
1: Thank you so much, Haley. Well, uh, earlier this summer, uh, my family, uh, Haley and myself and our two boys, were glued to the screen, uh, as so many of us were, as we watched uh, the first successful space shuttle launch um, in at least the lifetime of my children, at least in the last 10 years. Um, We all watched as SpaceX uh, successfully launched um, from just down the road in Cape Canaveral. A space shuttle uh, and two men who we all knew on a first name basis as Bob and Doug were launched into space. And amazingly, the rocket that sent them into space turned around, came back and landed back on Earth. Uh, It was an amazing thing to see. My uh, kids have regularly asked for status updates on what Bob and Doug are up to and when they're coming back to Earth uh, to join us. This uh, space launch was a little bit of excitement and good news and togetherness in what has been uh, honestly a brutal 2020, a year filled with uh, coronavirus and uh, racial injustice and protests and what seems to be ever deepening polarization in our world. Here was something to cheer and to celebrate together. I cracked up when I saw someone on Twitter Uh, write in reference to this crazy year of 2020, two men, Bob and Doug, left earth today in what is surely a brilliant decision. Uh, And I think we can all identify with that in the midst of the world swirling around us, a desire to escape, uh, a desire to to get out of here. It's tempting uh, to want to run away and to escape. And this is a temptation that the Christian church Uh, has felt throughout our existence and has often given into. A desire to live more as citizens of heaven uh, than as citizens of this world. With all of its problems, with all of its stresses, with all of its obligations, with all of its complexity and brokenness. And yet Peter here reminds his readers, both in the first century and then through them towards us, that Christ has not removed us from this world. That belonging to Jesus uh, does not mean not belonging in this world. That we live out our Christian discipleship as citizens of the nations of this world, as members of the households of this world. That we are, in this world, working out our faith. And so how do we do that? How do we engage with the world around us? with politics, with our relationships, with our society, as Christians without losing our souls. In light of all of that we've already been through in 2020, uh, we still have a presidential election ahead of us, which is n- not likely to do anything to minimize the angst and the anxiety and the polarization of our time. So how do we live out our life in these days without losing our souls. That's what Peter is talking about here. How do we live? He's just gotten done in the passage that Jonathan uh, beautifully taught on uh, last week. He's used and given to us some of the highest language anywhere in the Bible to describe the new identity that we have as people who belong to Jesus. He's called the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is our identity. This is who we are. This is also strikingly political language, right? That we are citizens of a kingdom. We're people under a king. We're a new nation. This is the language that God in the Old Testament applied often to the people of Israel. They were His beloved. They were His chosen. They were His holy people, His chosen race, His royal priesthood, His holy nation. And now Peter applies all of those words to the church. But unlike Israel, we don't live as a geopolitical nation. Instead, we live spread among the nations of this world. We live, as Peter says in verse 11, as sojourners and as exiles. Citizens of another kingdom living within the kingdoms of this world. Subjects of another king living underneath the kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and dictators and rulers of this world. Right. Think about all of the different political settings that Christians have worked out this identity. Some have lived, as we do, under presidents and under elected representatives and democracies. But the vast majority have lived, as Peter's first audience did, under emperors. Many have lived under kings and queens. Many have lived under dictators and chieftains and warlords. And all of us have lived under those kingdoms while recognizing that our primary kingdom, our primary citizenship, was in the kingdom of God, ruled under the kingship of Jesus. Participants of another political reality, a nation within the nations of this world, a kingdom within the kingdoms, Of this world, that as the kingdoms of this world rise and fall and come and go, that that kingdom, the kingdom that belongs to Jesus, we're told will only grow and deepen and endure until one day, as John tells us in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so, how do we live as members of that kingdom within? the kingdoms and nations and countries of this world without losing our souls. We're going to look at what Peter tells us here. The first thing that we have to do is to remember the plan. Remember the plan of which we're a part. Remember the story, the big story in which we find ourselves. That if you are in Christ, you have been called into a plan to save the world a plan to change the world and to redeem it. And that plan doesn't have its hopes attached to the risings and fallings of the political uh, fortunes of the kingdoms of this world, right? That we believe in a different plan to change and transform the world. Look at what Peter has to say here in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. This is actually, uh, it's amazing. This is almost a word-for-word quotation, the the end of that that passage. is almost a word-for-word quotation from some of the first words that Peter, The disciple of Jesus, the apostle, the author of this letter, heard from Jesus himself. All of the Gospels tell the story of Peter being called to be a disciple of Jesus. We're told that Peter, at that time uh, named Simon, was fishing, uh, as was his trade, with his brother Andrew on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walked up to them invited them to leave the only jobs, the only economic source they had ever known as fishermen, their their stock in trade. When he called them, he said, uh, leave that, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Leave everything you've known to come and to be my disciples. That takes place uh, in Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus takes these early disciples And gives them a crash course in what it's going to mean to be his followers. What it's going to mean to be his disciples. And we're told that he goes up onto the mountainside and he sits down and he begins to teach these disciples in what becomes known as the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with teaching the Beatitudes, this series of blessed are. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he teaches these early disciples what it's gonna mean to live in his kingdom. That his kingdom, uh, judged by the standards of this world, is an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom in which there's blessing to be found in poverty of spirit instead of in pride. It's a kingdom in which there's blessing to be found in mourning instead of in happiness. It's a kingdom in which there's blessing to be found in hunger after righteousness rather than an easy satisfaction with the offerings of this world. Living uh, as disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God looks to the outside world like craziness. It looks like everything is entirely upside down and backwards to front. But to be a disciple means to learn to live in his kingdom, marked by his values and his teachings, not by the kingdoms of this world. It means that the life of a disciple looks strange. That that the life of a disciple is judged and measured by a different set of values. The great uh, late teacher Dallas Willard described Christian discipleship this way. That a discipleship is someone living by grace and by choice. As an apprentice to Jesus. Learning from Him how to live in His kingdom. So that the life of the disciple becomes the life of Jesus lived through them. So that their life looks like the way that Jesus would live his life if he had their neighbors and their family and their job living out his values in their life. And so Jesus lays out these beatitudes and then he moves on in the Sermon on the Mount to describe these disciples as the salt of the earth and the light of the world exerting this, uh, this transformative influence as we are changed more and more into the upside-down values of the kingdom of God, that we start to permeate this world uh, as an offer and as an invitation of a different way to live, a foretaste of a kingdom to come so we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I'll just read a verse here, Matthew 5, 14 and 15. You are the light of the world you and me were the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven did you hear that those are the the verses that peter quotes is the motivation for his people, his his churches that he's writing, to persist in battling against sin, cultivating virtue and love and holiness in themselves so that their neighbors, though they might try to accuse them of evil, would see their goodness and give glory to God. Friends, that is the logic of Christian mission. You and me, ordinary people, learning to live by Jesus, living lives of truth, beauty, and goodness in the world so that it radiates out and our neighbors begin to see our lives and to give glory to God and perhaps even to come into the faith that has become our hope. This is the slow, hard, patient, and small work of Christian discipleship. And Peter wants his readers to know that this is a political act. Not partisan, not gov- governed by the political vagaries of his day or ours. But it's political. It's a way of stating that we live by a different law in a different kingdom in a different way in order to give life to all of the kingdoms of this world. But unfortunately, far too often we have found this way of discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus, difficult. And so we attach our hopes to other ways of trying to bring about change and transformation in our world. As the great G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity, the way of discipleship, has not been weighed, tried, and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So we settle for other ways of trying to seek a better world. And that's where Peter goes next. So we've said that uh, to live in this world without losing our souls means that we remember the plan to which we've been called. And then secondly, it requires us to engage human government respectfully and yet realistically. Look at what Peter says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. And to praise those who do good. Peter is asking uh, his churches to take a realistic but respectful posture towards the government in which they live, towards the Roman emperor first and foremost, and then under him the governors that he had appro- that he had uh, put over each region. And so they lived within a political structure that gave them a governor, uh, over their cities and area, and then an emperor over them, and Peter says that for the Lord's sake, you ought to live in submission to those governmental to those uh, to those rulers. This is a posture of giving human rulers what they are due and reserving for God what is due to him, to give earthly rulers, human institutions, as Peter calls them, to give them their due, but not more than their due. It's this posture of respect and yet reserve and realism. Now, to those of us living uh, in Western liberal democracies, this seems like kind of a disengaged political stance, right? To say that we ought to live in submission and respect to our governing authorities, uh, it can seem like it's a stance that says, well, I'm going to disengage from the decisions that those folks make. I'm going to disengage from whether it's good or evil, just or unjust, and I'm just going to live with a kind of passive acceptance of it. But we have to remember that Peter is writing not to a Western democracy, but he's writing to a group of people who had zero say in who their emperor was and in who their governors were. If Claudius, the emperor that they lived under at the time, enacted policies that they didn't agree with, which which certainly he did uh, nearly every day, Uh, it wasn't like they could attach their hopes to saying, well, you know what? In another four years, we're going to vote a better emperor. in." No, they were left with this resignation that whoever whoever becomes the next emperor will be the next emperor. Whoever becomes the next governor will become the next governor with no hope that the next ruler would be more just than the last one. In fact, as, as history proved out, they tended to go from bad to worse. And yet Peter says, even in that situation, You ought to live subject to those authorities, to every human institution, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake. Peter writes to a minority population, citizens of another kingdom, remember, sojourners and aliens, living under the Roman Empire. And so what he says to those folks in the midst of that is that you ought not anchor your hopes to a transition in the leadership of the Roman Empire. You ought to learn how to live even under unjust rulers. In fact, he's going to go on to talk to servants or slaves, to talk to them about how they live under unjust rule and oppression. Right? And he writes to, in writing to slaves, just as he was writing to uh, the average citizen of the Roman Empire, he's writing to people who have no realistic hope of changing their situation or of changing the institution within the Roman Empire. So he's writing to a group of people who find themselves without power. In the case of servants, he's going he's to write to them about the very nature of the injustice that they, that they suffer. But then he lifts them up and gives them the dignity of saying, even if the world denies you agency, denies you authority, denies you your basic rights, that God does treat you as an individual with the capacity for love and transformation, with the responsibility of discipleship, that he writes to them is human persons capable uh, of living their lives in a way that other ancient authors wouldn't. Uh, usually uh, when, and we have just scores and scores of these things, when ancient philosophers in the Roman Empire wrote uh, about this genre of literature that's become known as household codes, Uh, codes that were written to help people live within the interlocking web of responsibilities and rights in the ancient world, how they lived under the emperor as citizens, and then how they lived as men, women, and slaves, which were the, the three main categories. Usually these instructions, and we have them from everybody from Plato to Aristotle and everybody in between, usually they were written to one person, to the male head of household. And it was about how he ruled his slaves and how he governed his wife, and yet in here in, Pe- in, in First Peter and in elsewhere in Paul, he writes first to the slave, then to the women, and then only lastly and most short and, and most briefly uh, to the men of the society. And so what we see here is a subtle subverting of the normal ways that they approach these things, saying that everyone—men, women, children, slaves, and subjects—all alike are called to be members of one family living their lives as disciples of Jesus. And so he tells them that we are to live as subjects of our emperor, our president, our queen, whoever it happens to be. Not for their sake, but what does he say? For the Lord's sake. right? This is a, this is a fascinating and subtle little twist on what would have been common, common wisdom. right? Remember, Caesar wasn't after people submitting to him for some other Lord's sake. He wanted to be their Lord, right? Living in Rome wasn't just a political, you know, it wasn't just the circumstances of where you happened to be born. Rome believed themselves to be the eschatological hope of the world. They believed that they were going to be the ones who through the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, conquered the known world and brought civility and justice and rule of law and wealth and prosperity to the entire known world. Caesar's heirs actually lifted themselves up, not just as presidents or even kings and queens, but as as gods themselves, worshipped and given the entire loyalty of the heart, given the, the entire direction of the lives of their subjects. And so for Peter to write, yes, be subject to human authorities, but you do it for the Lord's sake. You do it because you recognize that there is a king over the kings of this world. What's noticeably absent here, even as Peter calls them to a posture of respectful submission, faithful citizenship, is a recognition that our primary belonging is to Christ. What's noticeably absent here in Peter's writing to his audience is any notion of pride or love or devotion or obsession on being a Roman. No amount of attaching your hope in Caesar or in his empire. There's this realistic appraisal that says, yes, you can have what's owed you, but you cannot have my heart, you cannot have my hope, you cannot have the the deepest allegiance of my heart, because that belongs to another king, and that belongs to another kingdom. Now, we believe that this letter, 1 Peter, was written during the reign of Claudius, as I mentioned earlier, who was a fairly good emperor as far as the Christians were concerned. Uh, now, all of the horrible policies uh, that every uh, one in the Western world lived under at the time went on, right? There was still uh, widespread uh, slavery and infanticide and taking over other nations and militarization and all of these things were going on in the Roman Empire. But he granted a degree of freedom from, uh, from persecution for the Christians. Later in the writing of the New Testament, another emperor comes in named Nero. And Nero begins his work as emperor, somewhat along the policies of Claudius, but along the way, uh, he develops a different stance towards the Christians, in which all of a sudden now their lives and their freedom to worship their God are at stake. And as the New Testament progresses, we do see a tonal shift in the way that the authors talk about the Roman Empire. Right, It goes from early Roman Empire here, Uh, Peter saying, be subject to every human authority because they've been given to you by God. To something like Revelation, where John likens the Roman Empire uh, to a beast and a harlot in the nation of Babylon, where Israel was previously kept in exile. So the the writers of the New Testament do grow more explicit in critiquing and judging the Roman Empire as uh, they find themselves unjustly persecuted by that empire. Okay, what does all of this possibly mean for those of us who do live uh, in 21st century America? For those of us who do live in a Western liberal uh, democratic society where we do have a say in our rulers, right? Who can't say, well, I'm just gonna be subject to whoever uh, is next in line, whoever the, the next person of noble birth who takes over the throne or the governorship, whoever that person is. You know, in our system, each one of us uh, does bear some small percentage of ruling authority, right? We do have some say in who our city council members are and our mayor and our governor and our uh, congresspeople and our president. So how do we take the teaching of First Peter and apply it in our day and age when we do have more responsibility and say-so in the direction of our government? Well, Peter doesn't give us, obviously, a whole lot uh, about that. It being a situation that was alien to him. But he does give us a a brief job description for those who are put in a place of human authority. What does he say? Verse 14, or to governors sent by him to do what? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Right? So what he's saying is that the, the God intended purpose of human authority, human government, is to punish evil and to reward good. It's to rightly judge the difference between good and evil and to arrange their rule in such a way that order was preserved by good being rewarded and evil being met with justice. We talked a few weeks ago about justice, which in turn, everybody being given their due. And so one one category to bring to thinking about human government to thinking about the the imperfect choices that we make when we walk into a voting booth, is to think through, am I making uh, choices that align with what Jesus shows me about what's good and what's evil? Right. That we should look for people and look for policies that don't call evil good and good evil, that don't call vice virtue or vice versa. That was a tough sentence but to look for people who can rightly judge what's good and what's evil, what's worthy of praise and reward and what's uh, to be judged. And now we should acknowledge that in our, our world of limited choices, right? In, a, in an American governmental system that's largely two-party, that that won't, ma- uh, that won't map perfectly onto either one of our electoral choices in the US, right? That in every election, there's going to be looking at based on the ethics of the kingdom, based on what we know, and based on our following of Jesus and learning from Him what's good and what's evil. No human governor, no mayor, no city council member, no school board representative, no law on the ballot is going to map onto that perfectly. But we're called with our uh, transformed common sense, with our discipled wisdom, to seek good over evil. And then to live with a sense of realistic respect, reserved, uh, respectful, uh, realistic perspective on politics. Informed, engaged, but not obsessed. Thirdly, Peter calls us to honor everyone. I love this. I think this may be the single most countercultural virtue that the church could adopt in our day and age. Imagine what it would be like if the church really was known for being a body of people that honors everyone. Everyone? Yes, everyone. Where every single person was treated as worthy of honor and respect and dignity and patience and love and celebration. Where every single person was honored this again uh, echoes a certain part of Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in some ways first Peter from here on is kind of a uh, an extended commentary on the Sermon on the Mount but remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 and 22 you've heard it said uh, that everyone uh, do not murder but I say to you anyone who harbors anger in his heart is guilty of murder but then what, what does he go on to say I'll read it He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. That word there, you fool, uh, is Aramaic raka, which is a great word. Uh, And it is meant to, it's one of those words that is made to sound like what it is. It's meant to sound like somebody spitting on someone. I won't imitate it. But it's meant to conjure the image of someone spitting on someone in contempt. And Jesus here identifies that so much of what plagues us as human beings is anger and contempt. And that they're not that different than murder itself. To to hold someone in contempt is to mean that they are not worthy of your attention, that they're not worthy of your respect, of your time, They're not worthy of you hearing them out. You can prejudge them. You can believe the worst about them. Arthur Brooks has called our society today a culture of contempt. And I think that's true. It's a culture in which we spit on one another constantly. Where we look down on one another politically and morally and intellectually and culturally. That we hold one another in contempt. We cluster with those that agree with us, and we hold all those who live differently, believe differently, vote differently. is unworthy of our honor. And yet Peter says to honor everyone. Why would we honor everyone? We should honor, as Christians, everyone because of what we believe, because of our theology. We believe every single man, woman, and child is made in the image of God, the bearer of a dignity that cannot be taken from them. We hold them to be made in a way that's unique and wonderful, that images his very nature to the world. And so no life uh, should ever be treated with contempt. The doctrine of the fall tells us that we're all broken, right? That we're all wandering together around the same wreckage. We're all wounded and wounding one another so that we can even bear with our neighbors' failings, their obvious sin the ways that they differ and we just never can agree that what they're doing is right. To still, uh, to view them with the empathy that says we are all broken. We are all wandering through the wreckage of this world trying. And so we can look with compassion and empathy. I saw the most beautiful example of honor everyone and empathy with everyone. Uh, in recent uh, kind of Contemporary events in the writing of Brian Stevenson. Brian leads the Equal Justice Initiative. He wrote the book, Just Mercy, which was, uh, I I highly recommend. It's a wonderful read. They also made a movie. Uh, If that's more your speed, you can watch that. But Stevenson has given his life uh, to laboring on death row, first in Alabama and now around the world, around the country, uh, seeking uh, for free to provide legal counsel to death row inmates. Uh, who, through some uh, act of injustice, were condemned to die. He becomes a a spokesperson not only for those who were condemned for uh, racist motives due to some kind of miscarriage of justice, but also those who've been an advocate for keeping children, uh, minors off of death row, for keeping the mentally handicapped from being able to be condemned to death. It's a beautiful man telling a beautiful story. But he tells, uh, towards the end of Jess Mercy, the story of Jimmy Dill, a mental, mentally handicapped man who did end up uh, being executed in the state of Alabama. He talks about the love that he began to hold for Jimmy, uh, the relationship that they forged together. Jimmy was a young man who made mistakes, uh, who was guilty of the crime, uh, but who in his, uh, in his imprisonment uh, did develop Uh, In spite of his mental handicaps, the capacity for love, he wrote poetry. And so Stevenson, towards the end of his book, says this. We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and we have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. The ways in which I have been hurt and have hurt others are different from the ways that Jimmy Dill suffered and caused suffering, but our shared brokenness connected us. Stevenson goes on to, to say that I, I, I developed this calling to work among the broken because I recognize my own brokenness. It's a picture of what it looks like to honor everyone, to honor those that the world has long since decided are not worthy of honor to see the image of God in them, to see our shared brokenness, and to labor for their good. So we honor everyone because of creation. We honor everyone because of the fall. And we honor everyone supremely because of the redemption of Jesus. That by His incarnation, Jesus Himself, the very second person of the Trinity, joined Himself with sinful and broken humanity. He did not consider our humanity with all of its sin, with all of its pride, with all of its brokenness. He didn't look down on it as unworthy of his love, but joined himself to us, saying, as, doing as, as Peter says here, bearing our sins in his body. He honored us by joining us. He honored us by bearing our sin on the cross so that we might do the same. Can you imagine if somehow we emerge from the chaos and contempt of our age as a church where every human being is honored? That our neighbors knew that Christchurch in town would be a place where you would be honored and cherished and loved. Last year, I saw two documentaries about the life of Mr. Rogers, or Fred Rogers. Presbyterian minister, um, who was better known as the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And a man whose unique gift was to honor everyone, to love children, to love everyone. And he said this, he says, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing. That when we look for what's best in a person, we happen, sorry, when we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does all the time. So in loving and appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something sacred, honoring everyone, honoring everyone. Well, Peter goes on uh, in a passage that we'll deal with uh, in some more length next week by writing to even slaves, to those who in his world had the least agency, who suffered the most injustice. And yet he writes to them first as he gets to dealing with the household. And he talks to them about bearing up under unjust suffering as their way of modeling the life of Jesus. And he actually uses them as a paradigm for the entire Christian community. This is amazing. He says that that the servants are the paradigm for what it means to live as a Christian in this world. Because that's the posture that Jesus took. The final thing we need to remember is that the Christian hope of change in this world is one of suffering and sacrificial love. Not one of power and dominance. that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed in a direct quote from isaiah 53 for you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul overseer of your souls friends remember this is peter this is hot-headed trigger-tempered peter This is the Peter that when the guards came to arrest Jesus, took a sword and cut off Malthus's ear. This is the the picture of a hard, arrogant, quick-to-act man who's been discipled by Jesus into a different way of being, who's learned the tenderness and humility of Jesus when Jesus moved towards him in self-giving love, when Jesus forgave him for his own cowardice, his own anger. And now Peter can come to others and say, no, no, no. We were saved through service. We were saved through the self-giving love of Jesus. And so now you give your lives away as, as servants of Jesus, loving your neighbors so that one day all might be gathered in and give glory to our God at his visitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we offer you our lives. We recognize that we are people who are prone to attach our hopes to lesser things. We're people who need to learn from you how to live our lives in meekness and humility and in hope. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you in the way of humble, self-giving love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.